Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now, let's dive in without further ado. You know, I think the theme of this conversation has sort of revolved around transparency. Uh, and and so I think if anything that I would, would leave the sort of general public with, it, it's that, like, don't just request it, like, demand it, like, demand transparency, demand transparency from the people that you are helping manage your money, demand transparency from your business partners, demand transparency from people that are telling you they have something that benefits you. Uh, you know, demand transparency. We will call them up and and force people, myself included, force me to justify my assumptions, force me to explain in real explainable terms what my value is. If I'm using acronyms and highfalutin terms and trying to get you lost in a spreadsheet that you don't understand, like that's a red flag, right? Like if I cannot yep. explain our value proposition in plain English to another human being, uh, that that to me is suspect. And, and I would really encourage everybody. And this job has taught me to apply that to all aspects of my life is demand transparency, uh, because, again, it, it gives you more control over your destiny. Right. It gives you more control over your business success and growth if you know what you are doing and who you are doing. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined with Rob Moore. He works as the Director of Farm Operations at AcreTrader, having previously worked as an investment analyst and investment manager, specializing in row crops, farm sourcing, and acquisition. Prior to joining AcreTrader, he joined. He worked as a senior analyst, preceded by full-time work in livestock operations and real estate management. Rob Moore, welcome to the show. Casey, it's a pleasure to be here. Rob, so the thesis of our show, expanding the social, intellectual, and economic capital, that is our main thesis, what we're trying to do here. And I'm excited to have you on because we don't get a ton of guests who focus on the economic capital of specifically operating within agriculture and beyond. So tell us a little bit more about Rob Moore. Yeah, I mean, so I've been an acre trader. It'll be three years this coming spring, um, and and it really has been a, a fascinating journey. I mean, I had previously worked in real estate. I previously worked in agriculture, uh, specific on the livestock side, uh, and then eventually moved into waste and recycling, and and from there built a financial career. So I was doing contract negotiation, financial analysis within that industry. Uh, always wanted to be back in agriculture. As a non-intergenerational farmer, uh, that was not an option for me, right? I mean, I, I didn't feel as though I was in a position where I could go build a sustainable business to support my family in agriculture without any experience or, or background. Uh, and when I had the opportunity to get back into agriculture, coming out of, of what I had done in the financial world, it, it made a ton of sense. I mean, this is where I wanted to be. I, I live in Arkansas. I you know live on 10 acres out in the woods here in Northwest Arkansas. Wasn't going anywhere and, and, and very privileged that we have a company like this based in rural America. Uh, I think one of the advantages that Acre Trader has afforded me is, is it really is a good marriage of a, a pretty hardcore, transparent economic platform that is trying to connect operators to investment capital. Uh, but at the same time, we live in rural America, right? I mean, I, I mm -hmm. can drive to the Delta in a morning. I can drive up to the Midwest in a morning. I can drive down to Texas in a morning. 
And I think that gives us a different perspective. Um, I personally came into AcreTrader as an investment analysis. I was running deals. I was building a network of farmers. I was looking for opportunities and, and really working boots on the ground. Uh, spent a little bit of time as our company began to succeed and expand uh, doing management. So that was a little bit different, looking at how do you consider underwriting uh, as not only an art form, but as a scalable business model. Uh, worked with a, an incredible team. I mean, one of the advantages of working here is our brain trust is just massive. Uh, I think part of that is location. Part of that is is recruitment. We have a little bit of a unique business model uh, that I think has, has brought together a pretty phenomenal group of individuals. Uh, and then now I'm the director of farm operations. So I get to sort of straddle the line between underwriting. I do still run deals and, and maintain a network of operators that I work with directly, uh, but also figuring out how you manage these assets long-term. I think a lot of times people think about investment opportunities, particularly in alternative investments, as a one-time event, right? You throw your money in and then, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to wait yeah. five or 10 yeah. years. And we want investors to take that approach. But realistically, managing farm ground with operators and farm managers is not a it's not a just you leave it alone and, and let it happen, right? There's a whole lot of communication involved there and just an understanding of, of making sure that you are able to change as the market changes to meet the needs of the operators that you're working with. I mean, we have a truly two-sided marketplace. We have operators that are coming with opportunities. Uh, I'm not out cold calling people, right? I, I don't go source deals by picking up the phone and banging on doors. We have people coming to us looking for opportunities to expand their business. I'm trying to figure out where we can marry that need with the need of investors and what they're looking for, trying to invest in the agricultural space. Uh, and yeah, it's been really rewarding. I, I have had more fun uh, and, and probably more sleepless nights than any other position I've been in here. That's great. So out of Arkansas, you didn't feel like growing, farming rocks or chickens? <laughs> you know the Ozarks well. Yes, we uh, we grow a, a hell of a rock and hell of a chicken. Um, no, we you know our our CEO is is out of a, a farm family in the Delta, uh, so obviously okay. a huge producer of rice and cotton and soybeans down there. Um, and you know our expansion, our first farms were primarily in the Delta. We then expanded in quite a bit in the Midwest. That's going to be your corn and beans ground. And then since then, it's been really fascinating because our value proposition fits really well in pretty much any major agricultural region, um, which is functionally, you know, we are investing in an operator or the land that they are expanding their business onto. So we're focused around investing in business expansion opportunities, primarily through investment in land. So we're looking at agricultural real estate markets, and that's allowed us to expand in a large way into the Southeast, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, as well as hopping over the mountains, we do quite a bit up in your region in the Pacific Northwest, as well as permanent crop offerings in the in the Central Valley in California. Okay, that's great. Thanks for that overview. What does what is the typical investment, or if you're an operator, what does the process look like when they get a hold of Acre Trader? What are they trying to do? Who are they looking to partner with? What are the challenges? Can you walk us through some of those things? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, functionally, our value proposition or pitch to farmers is I am a potential partner if you are looking for equity partners to step in and help you expand your business. Um, I, I'll start with one simple example and then we could expand in it, you know, any number of other ones. But yeah, sounds a, great. a pretty common one for us, particularly on the row crop side, though we've done this in permanent crops as well, is intergenerational land transfer. 
right? So you have uh, the old adage is farmers live poor and die rich, right? You have so much capital that is tied up. Uh, and a lot of farmers own X number of acres of their ground and then lease the remaining acres. They're constantly trying to expand their own ownership base as well as their leasing base. As a farmer gets closer to retirement, uh, you know, there's not a 401k that comes with a cell phone farm business. And so a lot of operators are looking for an opportunity to pass ground onto their children in a way that allows them to cash out. You know, if you are taking over your family farm and you are in your mid-20s or even mid-30s, you know, your ability to drop or pick up from the bank the amount of debt to buy, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollars worth of ground on top of the equipment load and the input costs and fuel and everything else uh, is usually inhibitive, right? That process then cannot occur. So we get a lot of calls from operators that say, hey, I really want to sell this ground. I, I need to cash out to be able to retire. I really want to make sure that the next generation, whether that be a son or daughter or you know my farm manager, my neighbor that's been farming this ground for 20 years, whoever that individual is, has the opportunity to retain access to that ground and oftentimes has the ability as they build their business to then buy that farm back. So they call me and they say, hey, I've got a farm. I need to sell this farm. I really want to keep this operator on. And here's the conditions of that agreement that I would like. I then say, okay, here's what an investor is looking for on our platform. So whether that be directly on acretrader.com uh, where we're syndicating. So you may have 150 different people that throw in 25 to $100,000 uh, or directly through an institutional or SMA client. Here's what that individual is looking for. Can we figure out a way to make it work for both of you? You know, what terms make sense for you? What sale price makes sense for you to get this deal done? And, and honestly, it's just a simple give and take. I, I'm, you know, we've built our business model on transparency uh, because again, what I tell people all the time is I'm going to turn around and post on the internet. I have absolutely no incentive to be dishonest with you because you're going to get online and read everything that I tell when I go to the investment class and say, hey, here's an opportunity for you to invest in, you know, Dickman Farms, Willamette Valley Farm. Yeah. You're going to see all of that. So it, it allows a, a less combative uh, conversation, right? I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. much more focused around how can we collectively work toward a deal that works for both sides. So sort of finish that process, they say, okay, let's say that we generally agree on market price and, and terms for a sale lease back with a purchase agreement to your uh, son or daughter in five to seven years. We're structuring out the length of that investment hold period and then doing really deep diligence. And, and our diligence is a marriage of data and expertise. So on the data side, you know, Acres, that is uh, our in-house advanced land valuation platform. It's actually publicly available now. You go to acres.com. That is its own product. Um, that is where I'm centering all of my data. So when I'm doing diligence and underwriting a farm, you know, you start with the, the high level things. I need to know the soil classes. I need to know the drainage, the elevation. I need to understand the just core intrinsic value of this property as an agricultural property. Uh, that said, the second half of that is understanding the market. So I need to understand the regional basis. If we're talking about corn and soybeans, I need to understand, you know, in the Treasure Valley, I need to know how many onion processors there are, what the you know drive to get to a sugar beet plant is. And then yep. on top of that, I need to understand the local real estate market for agricultural land. Uh, one of the things that people don't often realize when they come to our space is there is no MLS for farmland. If I go to sell my house, 
I can get online and I can see the price, the sale price publicly of every single house on my block. I can see how many square feet they are, how many rooms they have, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that doesn't exist in farmland. And when you tack on the, you know, there are several states that are non-disclosure states for real estate property sales. It, it's not something that you can just Google. That information is not publicly available. Mm-hmm. We have spent a ton of resources collecting, sorting, and organizing that on the acre side of our business. So then I can look on a single map. I, I used to, for perspective, I probably had five different mapping subscriptions. Uh, and now I have one. I get on acres. I have all of my data, both intrinsic as well as all my comparable sales data. So I pull it up and I say, okay, I've got 40 different farmland specific sales within this county within the last 18 months. I can then sort those by soil class, soil score, dollar per PI point or CPI point or CSR2 point or whatever the state specific score is, and then get a really clean analysis of, of what the quote unquote paper value or desktop value of that farm is. That's half. I'm halfway there, right? I feel like I can do that quicker than even I ever could when I started. And as an organization, I believe we can do that quicker than just about anybody. That said, that does not tell you the value of a farm. I think another misunderstanding in ag is that, you know, you can spreadsheet farm and be successful. And and that's simply not true. And I have seen more examples of that failing than I can count. Um, So the second half of that is expertise. And that's both in-house as well as networked. Uh, Our business is designed to allow other individuals to build their businesses on top of ours. So I ask farmers to do diligence, farmers that are already working with us. will say, hey, I've got a farm that came to me from a seller. There is no farmer coming on it. Uh, I'm looking for a potential operator. Can you help me do some diligence? We have a, a large network of farm managers that we work with very closely. Farm managers are both sourcing partners, right? They know that if they bring me a viable opportunity, uh, then they're going to get a management contract out of that. And realistically, you know, being able to provide honest feedback is what I value the most. Um, so we make sure that we are aligning our contractual incentives to, to make sure that everybody profits the most if they're honest, right? If we can get really good boots on the ground feedback from our network, marry that with our in-house expertise, right? We have decades and decades of experience across our team. We have individuals that have, you know, farmed for 20 years and been in investment banking and, and on and on. And that diverse team mixed with a local network, mixed with a data edge, uh, allows us to, to execute at a really high level and, and do so fairly quickly. So we would then move forward with an offer and we would say, okay, we've completed our diligence. We've agreed on terms with the seller. Uh, we've agreed on terms with the operator. Everybody's on the same page. Uh, I, I try to be clear with operators. They can walk at any time. They can end the conversation. It is not a, you told me about this. I'm going to go behind your back and talk to your landlord. That doesn't happen. Uh, either I do the deal with you or I don't do the deal. I mean, because at the end of the day, um, in ag, your reputation is everything. And that's based on your ability to, you know, uh, uphold honest relationships. Uh, I, you know, we joke all the time because the industry is so small. You know, we'll reach out to an operator and look, oh, yeah, I heard about you from my cousin. And then it turns out that his cousin farms for us two states over. Uh, this is a very small industry. And if you don't do right by people, you will not be in business very well. And, and again, there's plenty of examples of that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we go and put an offer in. Oftentimes, I'll hand that directly to the farmer. I'll say, look, this is your landlord. This is somebody that you developed this relationship with. Uh, here's a contract. Here's an associated lease agreement. You know, If they both get done and signed, hand them back to me and we've got a deal. Uh, if we need to adjust anything, let me know. 
but that gives them the power over that conversation. Uh, and whether that be a sale lease back with their parents or a sale lease back with a landlord that they have that is just ready to cash out on that, that asset, uh, you know, we try to make sure that we are always farmer first from the sourcing standpoint. Uh, and again, investor first from the investment standpoint. We need to collectively bring both of those groups together to have viable offerings. Yeah, you're marrying up those two. Th thanks for that explanation, Rob. Super helpful from my perspective. From You, you mentioned investors a lot. So you, you said you were sourcing many investors, could be 25,000 increments, 100,000 increments, but either way, they're going to have expectations as far as a return. Can you walk us through what some of those expectations are? Yeah, absolutely. So typically from an agricultural investment, you're going to see potential IRR impacted by two variables. The first one is year over year cash. So on a row crop farm, you're going to lease that ground. Now, sometimes that is a cash rent, in which case you're signing a lease agreement and it's relatively secure, right? I mean, tenancy is not an issue on farm ground, certainly not high quality farm ground. There will always be somebody interested in renting out high quality farm ground. Um, that is going to provide a flow of cash in today's environment where you can go to your bank for 5%. That cash rate is not going to be particularly attractive if that's what you're comparing apples to apples, right? Mm -hmm. If you marry that with the long-term appreciation of agricultural land and the lack of correlation between that inflation and the general economy or production of, of your typical stock bond split, uh, it makes a really compelling argument. So we try to model very conservatively when we present opportunities to investors. Uh, for instance, you know, if we put up a, a row crop offering in the Midwest, generally we're going to assume the 50-year average of 6% compounding appreciation for land. That's across every single type of land. That's across pasture land. That's across corn and bean land. That's across land that is in conservation reserve, right? All rural land or agricultural land uh, is USDA data, 6% annualized compound appreciation over the last 50 years. That includes the farm crisis of the 80s. The net grief data from 1990 to present is above 11%. So we're modeling conservatively across the board. We also, because we're working to build deals with farmers, I don't want to be a rent pinch, right? I don't want to be your highest lease agreement. I want to make sure that we're collectively maintaining the value of that asset because on an IRR basis, that value is driven by the farmland value much more than it's driven by the rental value. Now, that's all framed in a row crop world. When we work with permanent crop offer offerings, that's a little bit different, right? You're going to see larger cash flow, but then a larger standard deviation. Right? They're going to vary more. You have more exposure to that commodity. So you have more exposure to the price of almonds or the price of olives or olive oil uh, than you may if you were investing in corn and bean ground with a flat cash rent. Uh, though we also do flex agreements. And again, I typically tell operators, like, I'll give you a menu of all the different ways we've structured deals. And then you tell me what makes most sense for you in your operation. Um, because we found that investors, there is an investor for each type of agricultural investment. And just like you would never think of stocks as one asset class, you can't think of farmland as one asset class. But there are several sub-asset classes that come with their own both risk profile as well as you know deviation of upside and downside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Can you walk us through some of the, the row crop you mentioned? It sounds like a lot of the IRR or internal rate of return, a fancy word um, 
for return. You actually need a Excel model to calculate it, unfortunately. <laughs> but to get an IRR in some of the stuff that we do, it's a lot of it is based on the sale in, let's say, five or 10 years. Is that similar to these deals where investors are expecting the farmland to sell in year five? Yeah, that's correct. So we're going to have a, a horizon or hold period on each one of our opportunities. And we'll, again, we try to focus on a large menu of opportunities. So we have gone as long as 15 years with projected hold. We've gone as short as one. Um, and each one of those, again, is going to be based around the type of financial product that is being presented to investors and the type of deal and the crop type. A development project may be a, we want to plant an olive orchard, we want to bring it up into full production and then sell it. Um, again, higher upside dependent on land value, higher risk, because anytime you're planting a tree, uh, you can't lose that tree without having to start over. Where again, in row crop world, your corn blows over or floods, you replant the corn next year, you are backed by government insurance to, to make you whole, or at least partially whole on that loss, and you move forward. Um, the way that I communicate with operators is it's really important that you have an end in mind when you begin this conversation. Mm. So that end could be the number of acres that you want to expand up to. Hey, I'm at 5,000 acres. I really want to be at 8,000 acres. I have the equipment and the team for 8,000 acres. I'm at five. Okay, great. Now we have a goal. Now you can think through which of these contracts do you want a purchase option on to buy back? Which of these are opportunities where you're saying, no, I, I want a longer term lease, but I'm going to 1031 and use the money from the sale lease back to buy something closer to home. This isn't a core asset for me long term. That deal is going to structure differently. And thinking through on the investor side, it's the same thing, right? Do you want a shorter term hold or are you investing in the agricultural real estate market writ large? In which case, yeah, you diversify your portfolio, you sit and forget and both of those are very different approaches. Uh, our goal is to meet the market where it is. So ultimately, you know, the way that we are, are sourcing deals now is different than it was two years ago because the economy is different. And what investors are looking for and what farmers need is pretty different than it was a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and we try to make sure that our model is built to be a platform for other people to connect and build their businesses uh, given their needs rather than us saying we have this small box that you're supposed to fit in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that you bring up the, the menu of options. You have options that fit different scenarios from the operator perspective and to the investor as well. So I like that you guys have that optionality um, within AcreTrader. Could you walk us through the, the value in the sale and how AcreTrader thinks through soil? Yes. So uh, a couple of different things. I'll start with soil um, because on the ag nerd side, that, that's going to be the easiest for me to step into. Um, you know, when we think about soil, there's a couple of different things. So obviously, you know, especially in the Midwest, you have state specific soil scoring metrics and that's going to get you somewhere. Right. I mean, if I'm looking at Iowa, I know the general difference in the same region between a 91 CSR2 and a 65 CSR2. Now, if you're comparing across regions, that breaks down pretty quickly, right? I mean, depending on the adjustments due to slope or if you're using NCCPI, which is a national soil scoring metric, uh, that's going to be heavily influenced by whether or not you have irrigation, whether or not you have drainage attached to those farms. So, you know, we start at a very high level. 
hey, what are the soil classes? What do I know about these soils? Uh, and then we go the second level down, which is what might change the value of the ground in comparison to the value, quote unquote, value of that soil score. So when we're running analysis, I'm looking at the analysis of local comparable sales. I'm rerunning those on a per tillable basis. I'm rerunning those on a per soil score point basis. And then I'm adjusting for what we know through local expertise. So if I sit down with our farm manager, and again, we learn more. We manage over 45,000 acres now. So I have a much larger data set to pull conclusions from. And I might say like, man, I really like the way that Ashkam Elliott performs in Northeast Illinois. I think that that's a soil class that tends to outperform its PI score. Great. I now have yield data from our farmers. I have information from our farm managers and I can say, okay, uh, it looks like the market also knows that locally. So, you know, you'll see the price per point is higher on these soils than these soils. Or maybe I look at it a different way and say, okay, uh, in Southern Minnesota, there's several soils that are very heavy clay-based soils, incredibly high on a CPI score. If they cannot drain, then yield variation is going to be massive. Yeah. If they can drain, it's black gold, right? It is effectively buying Northern Iowa black gold that you think about as like the best corn dirt in the United States, but you're buying it at a discount because you're buying into a market that maybe uh, isn't quite as efficient as the Northern Iowa market. Um, those are all things that we have to learn, right? We both know them and learn them, and we're progressively getting better at linking all of that data at a really large scale. So that's the, the data integration side. Again, we don't make decisions based off things we see on a computer, but we take all of the local expertise and knowledge that we gain, we overlay it with very large data sets, and we help that or allow that to inform how we make decisions and communicate with the ag market locally. Um, so I, I could go on. I mean, if there's additional soil questions, I love talking about dirt uh, because, again, that's that's the value of crop production is in your soil. Um, and then there's the additional conversation about, you know, how do you do soil testing and how do you think about soil testing? How do you think about nitrogen fixing? How do you think about advances in input costs and microbials and, and sort of yeah. on down that road? What I will say is I also like I'm not a production farmer. And I want to be really obvious and, and straightforward that my job is to default to local expertise. So my lease agreement does not tell farmers how they have to farm. I'm, I'm really hardcore about not being the landlord that tells you how to farm. Now, I do ask for quite a bit. I want to know the soil scores. I want to know the year-over-year -year yields. I want to see what we can do to improve that asset. Uh, because again, if your returns are so tied to land value, any upside you can give that asset is going to pay dividends in the long run. Um, this has been one of our best sort of marriages with operators. Uh, operators know the value of, of putting in CapEx into their farms. They know the value in yield on drainage tile or irrigation improvements or land leveling or land grading. But those are expensive, right? They, you, yeah. Now you look at the cost of tile today. I mean, plastic in the Midwest is not cheap. And if you're putting in tile to, to drain out a wet spot in a field, it might cost you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, from an investor standpoint, that's nothing, right? I mean, if we're spending $6 million on this farm and I can spend an additional quarter million and drastically improve that asset, not only am I providing value to the investor who's focused on the exit value 10 years down the road, but I can also provide value 
to the operator in increased yield. And that's on our dime. That is not something that, that we even allow operators to pay for. That is tied to the value of the asset. They are benefiting from that. And the reason that I make sure that it's always structured that way is because it incentivizes operators to tell me what's wrong with that asset. Right? When you call me with an asset, if there are ways to improve it, that's a good thing. Because the turnkey asset, you know, especially in the Midwest, you're going to take it to auction and I'm going to get priced out. It's going to go for yeah. $18,000 an acre. And as an investor, I want to buy below market. Right? I, I want to have a positive entry price to then hedge the risk at exit. So I, I, again, I, I want our model to be one where operators are calling us and saying, hey, I've got a really great opportunity. It really needs some work. Those are the best opportunities for us as an equity partner, because then I can present an upside to investors. Um, and, and I think it's worth noting, particularly in an environment where uh, investors can get relatively safe returns if their goal is to just to keep up with inflation. Um, it's really important that there is upside on an agricultural investment, whether that be mm -hmm. from the yield structure, so a flex lease, whether that be from improvements via CapEx budget on the farm, whether that be a, a favorable entry price, whatever that trigger is, uh, demonstrating upside is a, a pretty key part of the investment process. Mm -hmm. Agree, Rob, that meat on the bone perspective. I'm in the real estate world. It's in a lot of a lot of segments and kind of why I got out of you know trading in stocks. It's, it was really hard to figure out how much meat there was on the bone at a certain price point. You just have to do hundreds of hours of research and you can't just look at a building or it's not like you're looking at a building seeing that it's pretty dilapidated and it needs a lot of renovation work or going to an opportunity that you're talking about. The local guys know what a good deal is and they can probably you know, gut check it in five, 10 minutes. Yep. And it's interesting you bring that up. Like it, when I think about CRE or, or commercial real estate development, right? The data on CRE since 1990 is 6%. Farmland is 11. CRE is 6. Now, again, if you look at investment opportunities and projected IRRs, CRE is going to average way higher than farmland, right? They're spitting out 15s and 20s and 25s all the time. Yeah. But that standard deviation, you're, the risk of you losing capital in those instances is far higher. So, you know, again, it has a substantially lower compounded appreciation rate over the last 33 years, despite typically presenting larger expected returns on the front end of investment opportunity. Uh, I think it's really important and something that, to be honest with you, like, you know, we still struggle with, especially with new investors that haven't accessed the asset class and don't have any historical connection to it. You know, they don't know nothing about agriculture outside of their grocery store explaining the difference in risk profile between investing in agriculture and investing in anything else, including gold or silver, whatever, it is sort of hard to do. I always boil it down to you know, the core economic thesis behind farmland is that you have a shrinking supply and an increasing demand. We need more food. We need more fuel. We need more fiber, both domestically as well as internationally. And we are losing three acres of arable farmland a minute. And if you go into a region like the Treasure Valley, where you're located, that's compounded. You have even less available land and you have even more development pressure. So the core underlying economic thesis of investing farmland is sound. Uh, and again, once you start extrapolating into the details, what I focus on is where's your standard deviation? What is the swing in potential outcome? And I believe in farmland that 
range of potential outcomes is much tighter than you see in several other industries. Mm. Rob, can you speak to the stat that you just threw out there, the three, the loss of three acres a minute? Can you help us unpack that? Sure. Yeah. And and it seems audacious when you say it, right? I mean, like, he's like, losing three acres yeah. of farmland a minute, right? Yeah. Uh, but now think about the population increase in the United States. And that's just in the United States. That is a domestic statistic is three acres a minute. You think okay. about the, the population expansion. And, and again, I am uh, I, I grew up in Orlando. In my teens, I was in Orlando. I was an army brat and then retired to where my family was from in, in Florida. Uh, I lived in Orlando. I'm not that old. I mean, it, I go back to Florida now 20 minutes later and Orlando looks like a different country, right? I mean, a completely different place. And that's just in a couple of decades. You're in Boise or around Boise, exact same experience, I imagine, right? You think about being a kid there and what it looks like now. And everywhere you go, that's the reality. Our population is expanding and the middle class is still expanding, right? Our wealth is continuing to expand. Our need for these resources is continuing to expand. And honestly, we just need places to put people, right? I, mean, I, I have the distinct advantage of living in Northwest Arkansas, where we still have a ton of rural room and land available. But even here, uh, I've been here for, gosh, a little over a decade now. And, and the change I've seen is drastic. The population continues to expand exponentially. Um, that is infringing on land that used to be farmland. Uh, it doesn't help that usually people want to live uh, in places that have access to water, that have access to sunlight, that have access to infrastructure, and that's what you need for agriculture. So uh, unfortunately, that's just a reality. And, and again, I, I, you know, you and I talked before we we started this podcast. There's a tension built in there, and, oh, and yeah. it just exists that you can't get around. You can't get around the tension between wanting somewhere to live and needing food, fuel, and fiber to survive. And I live somewhere and I also eat and drive a car and wear clothes. So I, I also feel <laughs> that internal conflict. I work in it every day. Um, and, and unfortunately, like that's driving a really intense dwindling of supply of agricultural land. Uh, and, and again, particularly when you get into specialty crops that, that just gets uh, escalated. Right. I mean, you look at irrigated valleys in the Pacific Northwest, uh, which I believe are, again, some of the most important and productive crop regions in our country. Uh, the Treasure Valley, Magic Valley in Idaho and, and Oregon, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, the Columbia River Basin in southern Washington, the Central Valley in California. Right. Those alone produce a massive percentage of the things that you buy every day from the grocery store. And those are areas with shrinking supply uh, and expanding demand. Mm hmm. Yeah, it is an interesting relationship between new housing development and farmland. Like you just said, I could drive from Caldwell to Boise 10, 20 years ago, and you could see farmland, you know, throughout, right? But now if I, I'm going to take this drive today, actually, for my grandma's birthday, and it's going to be essentially one big subdivision the entire way. <laughs> Um, so probably very similar to what you were experiencing in Orlando. I don't know. I don't think anyone has the right solution. Um, it's very difficult to manage, especially when you want to live in a free market society, when you don't want a state dictating, you know, how many acres, um, per parcel, or if it's going to be farmland, it, the optionality for farmers is a conversation that, you know, it, it's forthcoming and hopefully everyone's sitting down and having that conversation, but 
it's kind of neither here nor there. Um, last question, Rob, before we kind of wrap this thing up. So Acre Trader is an investment platform linking operators, farm landowners, and investors. Who can invest in Acre Trader if they are interested? Yeah, so on acretrader.com, we are limited to accredited investors. Um, we are a broker dealer, so just per SEC regulation. Um, you know, there are I don't know. I saw one last year. Every couple of years, there's a push within Congress to uh, expand access to uh, that designation. Um, and, you know, uh, we keep an eye on that and, and fully support that. Uh, unfortunately, today, you know, the, the rules are the rules and, and we are bound by the SEC and the type of deal structures that we put together are limited to accredited investors. Um, so we work with accredited investors on our platform. Um, that said, we try to, within that, class of investors reduce the access point. So historically, you really needed to get into a fund to invest in farmland. Uh, you needed to have, you know, realistically six digits and often seven to access this asset class. Uh, we have entry prices as low as $15,000, right? So okay. the reason that we syndicate and the reason that we focused on retail investors first, right? Typically, people start institutional and then try to figure out, is there a space for retail? Uh, our business was founded on the idea of democratic access to both sides, right? Our goal is to democratize farm access to investment capital, as well as investment capital to farmers. Uh, that then allows us to make decisions based on how good the farmer is or the business opportunity, rather than who they are, you know, who they know, who they inherited ground from. I, I hear this constant sort of story from farmers that, that they sort of feel like they are at an advantage or a disadvantage because other individuals in their community have access to capital that they do not. Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm not the great, 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 great grandson of the biggest farmer in the county. I, I don't have that behind me to leverage with my banker. Hey, I don't have a rich uncle. Well, you know, our platform was designed for both sides of that equation. From the farmer side, I want to say, and, and again, like I work with farmers that farm maybe, you know, less than or a thousand acres, a couple thousand acres. We work with farmers that farm 10,000 acres or 12,000 acres. I, I think the goal is to democratize that experience to allow the person and the opportunity to speak for themselves and for us to be focused around transparent access to information and then translation. There is a lot lost in translation. You know, I have always seen myself as a little bit of a, you know, straddle the line, right, between political classes and social classes and everything else. Uh, and I find this job really satisfying in the sense that it allows me to translate between groups that probably like have a lot more in common and should understand each other better than they do, um, especially speaking on behalf of the agricultural industry to investors and making it clear. I, I think it would be a disservice to the agricultural industry to uh, overshoot or be too aggressive on presenting opportunities to invest in this asset class. Uh, and I think that when I see that, it is very frustrating because, I, again, I think it does a disservice to both sides. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, the same with commercial real estate. You see a lot of people in their prospectus just saying, you know, the returns are going to be crazy. I mean, that's just a huge red flag for us. I mean, everything should be under, underwritten very conservatively. And the people putting together the deal should happily walk you through any of the assumptions, which I'm sure that Acre Trader is, is a very similar way. And yeah, transparency is paramount in a lot of in 
in life and especially these deals. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, again, that's we don't have a call center, right? It, you can pick up the phone and call me and I'll pick up the phone and talk to you. I mean, we we are a pretty small team, both on the underwriting side as well as the investor relations side. Uh, you know, you can always get on AcreTrader.com and there's a four farmers page. You can walk through top of funnel. Uh, also, like my name is Rob Moore and my email is Rob.Moore at AcreTrader.com. It's that simple. Uh, we try to be really aggressive about giving people access to us. Um, even where that's not like, you may think of that as a negative ROI at a very high, like a uh, spreadsheet business ownership level, right, yeah. right? But on the ground to succeed in this industry, you have to be a human being. And, and I think I actually found it really helpful that Jim Schultz, who you interviewed, I don't know, last week or the week before, um, it, you know, he was very specific about this and talking about AI. And I thought it was, was spot on, right? Like ultimately uh, a lot of times there's a misunderstanding that like an AI doesn't have a person behind it. It has a data source that it's pulling from. And understanding that data source is paramount to understanding the information you're being given. We feel the same way. The, the information that we're giving you is dependent on showing you how we got it. If I can't justify my claim, if I give you a number and don't give you an Excel model to show you the assumptions that provide that number, that IRR is meaningless. And, and yep. it drives me nuts when you see opportunities that don't give you the information to understand how they got to a certain number. Uh, that is a huge part of our business model is being really transparent uh, and then making ourselves available. Like if you want to call and yell at me and tell me all my assumptions are wrong, I'm here for it. I love to have those conversations, yeah. right? A, they are challenging. They make sure that I you know, really believe in our underwriting and the work that we've done. Uh, and B, it helps me become better. It gives me more feedback, both from the industry as well as the financial world, to make sure that we are upholding what we say. Uh, you know, it's meaning, kind of meaningless to have like a mission and vision and all this marketing material if I don't believe in what we're doing. Um, so I, I typically you know, champion that type of feedback. I want to hear the feedback particularly if it's negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sharpening the the knife. Yes. Rob yeah. Moore, where can people get a hold of you more? And I know you just threw out your email, um, but if anyone's interested in Acre Trader, what you guys have going on, where can people go? Yeah, I mean, AcreTrader.com is going to be our platform. So you can see every offering that we currently have available. You can go back and look at past performance. You can see how the opportunities that we've exited have performed. Uh, you can click on for farmers. Uh, we also provide, gosh, if you count pages, I imagine the vast majority of our website is actually not about uh, investments that we do or farmers we work with. It's mostly just the learning center. Uh, we have produced an immense amount of material. That's both us doing it ourselves. So you'll see interviews with our underwriters uh, and you know walkthroughs of different regions. But we also try to highlight like farmers and the people that we work with. Why do they work with us? How do they work with us? How do they run their businesses outside of us? Um, I, I'm not somebody's sole partner, right? I, I am a piece of a large puzzle. I don't like mm -hmm. when ag companies sell themselves as the solution for farmers. I am yeah. not the solution for farmers. I am a solution to one part of your proposed growth. You're looking to expand your business. I am one option that fits one need. And I think we fit a need that nobody else is, is serving. And I think we fit that need extremely well. But I am a part of a much larger operation that is your business growth. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think our platform is centered on providing information around that. So investors can spend, I mean, you could spend hours and hours reading about the asset class. You know, I really think you could get like a 
a sort of crash course undergraduate in farmland investing just from digging through our learning center. Um, and so would highly encourage people to spend time engaging, even if you aren't accredited or even if you don't want to work with me, go there, see the content that's out there, learn about the industry and how they interact with each other. Uh, I think both investors as well as farmers uh, stand to benefit from understanding each other a little bit better. And I think you know operators can get on there and read how we talk to investors. That's going to give you a really good understanding of what investors are looking for. Likewise, an investor can get on and they can see a farmer talking about how they think about their business. That's going to allow them to, to do much better diligence on the opportunities and make the most sense for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fully agree. Rob Moore, appreciate your time today, sir. What is one thing you would like to leave us with today? You know, I, I think the theme of this conversation is sort of revolved around transparency. Uh, and and so I think if anything that I would, would leave the sort of general public with, it, it's that like, don't just request it, like demand it, demand transparency. Demand transparency from the people that you are helping manage your money. Demand transparency from your business partners. Demand transparency from people that are telling you they have something that benefits you. Uh, you know, demand transparency. People call them up and and force people, myself included, force me to justify my assumptions, force me to explain in real explainable terms what my value is. If I'm using acronyms and highfalutin terms and trying to get you lost in a spreadsheet that you don't understand, like that's a red flag, right? Like if I cannot explain our value proposition in plain English to another human being, uh, that that to me is suspect. And and I would really encourage everybody. And this job has taught me to apply that to all aspects of my life is demand transparency. uh, Because again, it, it gives you more control over your destiny, right? It gives you more control over your business success and growth. If you know what you are doing and who you are doing can agree more. Transparency is paramount. Rob, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate Casey, it. It's a damn pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk soon to everyone else. Feel free to rate, share if you found value, and look forward to another episode next week. All right. See you, everyone.